Mindfulness mode. If we're willing to look at it and be free from the things that hold us back. Because I think you can't really dream if you believe you're a victim. Mindful Tribe, her mission in life is to help others by sharing her story. And she's done that with her recent book. It's called I Meant It For Good. Well, her life has had some dramatic twists and turns, and yet she was always able to lift herself up and use mindfulness and her faith to move forward and just continue to thrive. One of her devastating obstacles was a leukemia diagnosis, which was nearly drastic. And you're going to learn so much about all of this today. My guest is a beautiful writer. Her name is Mary Reckhammer Meyer. Mary, welcome to the show. Are you in mindfulness mode today, Mary? Oh, Bruce, thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here. And yes, I am in mindfulness mode, but I believe it's a choice that we choose to be there or not. So I believe it's a choice too. And I know that you have a very strong faith. You're a Christian. But what does mindfulness mean to you, Mary? Well, I think, again, mindfulness means choices for me, but it also means becoming our authentic self. It means, um, I always thought it would be the visualization, and I used that for years, just looking six years out in the future, who did you want to be, how to create that life, and just being mindful about it, coming back, setting goals, and, and walking through that process. But now that I'm coaching others, I've gone back and kind of reflected on my life. And I see that there's some steps maybe that we need to look at and be mindful before that. And I think it comes from our core values. Our, do we believe in honesty and integrity and love? Or, you know, are there some things we have to deal with like anger and hurt? And I've been through all those things in my life. But I think if you don't, you can visualize and you can try to create your life. But if you're coming from a place of love and honesty and joy, you're going to create more of that. But if there's things you can't get past and you're hanging on to some old angers, there's things you really have to look at. So I think it's all choices. I do too. And I, I'm glad you said that about anger and hurt because most of us have it. And with a lot of us, we don't truly know how to get through it. What would your recommendation be, Mary? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> I think for me, Bruce, I went through a divorce in my mid-40s. Yes. And I didn't see it coming. I knew we had some problems, but I didn't see a divorce coming. And I couldn't hardly come to terms with it. I was a stay-at-home mother to four kids. I had actually gone back to work three years prior to that, and I was working part-time. But there was days I actually couldn't get out of bed. And I thought, what am I going to do? How am I going to support myself? I didn't even own a credit card in my name at the time. Wow. But I think, I think at some point I realized I was going to do this. And it was the anger that kind of fueled that. And I remember going to a therapist and asking him, I said, is it wrong that this anger is fueling this? And he said, no, use what you have. But if you're still using that in 20 years, you've got a problem. Right. And so I thought, wow, you know, so I think you do kind of use what you have. And then when I went through the cancer diagnosis three years ago, Bruce, I learned early on anger wasn't going to get me out of that one. No. It had to be a total surrender. So it's I think sometimes you use what you have, but you have to recognize what it is and and grow from it and move out of it into something else to be free. 
Mary, I love the subtitle of your book, A Memoir of Dreaming, Visualizing, and Becoming My Authentic Self. So dreaming has been such an important part of your life. So can you tell us the role that dreaming has played for you? Did that happen even as a young girl? Were you a dreamer? I don't know. I guess I've never really thought of it back then. Um, I, you know, I tell this story in my book. I, I just wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and I'd line my dolls up and talk to them. But I think in some ways I was always a little bit of a dreamer, but I didn't have any idea what I could do or even wanted to do. But I think it's something that's planted inside of all of us if we're willing to look at it and be free from the things that hold us back. Because I think you can't really dream if you believe you're a victim. And one of the things that I really believe is we're all going to have adversity. Yours is going to look different than mine. And sometimes it's just almost too much. You don't know what to do with it. But none of us get out of this life without some kind of adversity. So we can choose to say, I'm a victim. Well, most of us don't say I'm a victim. We say things like, I'm too young, I'm too old, shouldn't have been this way. Or we can realize inside of that thing that happened to us, we still have choices and we can move forward. Right. But that's the I, only way if we own up to it that we can move forward. I so agree with that. And I, I love what you said about we cannot dream if we are playing the victim role. And the thing yeah. is, a lot of us don't recognize that. We don't think we're playing the victim role. So, you know, you talk all about this in your book and you said, you know, once you believed you could dream, then you visualized and new doors opened up for you. So how do we get to that initial identification that, hey, just a second, I am actually living as a victim because most of us don't even think we are. Right. And I I think I probably lived a lot of my life like that, Bruce. And I think I think it's the self-awareness, becoming your authentic self, who you were really made to be. And I think God made you to be a person. He made me to be some person. We're so busy trying to be like somebody else and get ahead in business and do it the way somebody else did. And there's nothing wrong with that because success leaves clues, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're that person. So we have to find out who we truly are to be free to. I don't know. I I go back to when I was diagnosed with cancer. I knew the anger wasn't going to get me there. I knew it was going to be another journey, but I knew it was going to be a different journey. And I had to get to the point where I could just totally surrender to it. And I I believe that I was going to be healed. So I had to latch onto that, visualize that, believe it, But, you know, quite frankly, I knew there was an outside chance I wouldn't be healed and I had to be okay either way. So it's just surrender, knowing, falling back into it and just being who you are and being okay with it. It's it's a thin book. And yet there is so much wisdom because how many people are looking for that answer? How do I surrender? You know, in mindfulness, we talk about surrendering and letting go, but that's the big key is how do you actually do it? And the secret is in your book. And I I think it's just so beautiful how you were able to write so concisely and not 
like you just seem to cut to the chase and in a beautiful way, like it was a beautiful flowing read. Was this difficult? Did you did you write like thousands of pages and then you had to condense it down to this or how did this work for you? Okay, so this is really interesting because I thought um, after I went back, after I went through my divorce, I went back to work and I went to school nights and I ended up getting my uh, bachelor's degree at the age of 50. At 51, I started my own insurance agency and I thought, wow, you know, this is great. So I, I, I learned I could sell. I didn't know if I could sell, but I learned I could sell. I'd been telling stories and helping people for a long time. So this was kind of my thing. But about a year into it, I went to a conference and I sat down and I listened to this speaker. And it was like, I knew how to run the business, but I didn't know how to. Um, I, I was so out of balance in every area of my life. So I think it's that balance. And you know what? I'm not sure I didn't lose the exactly what you were asking me here. Well, I was asking you how you were able to be so concise in your book. And I was asking you if you had written thousands of pages and then you had to condense it down to this or it just happened. Right. Well, I took a step back to tell you that, that I had learned these disciplines. And then um, once, once I was diagnosed with a cancer, I knew these disciplines were there somewhere. I may not have been utilizing all of them, but I knew they were there. And so quite frankly, I started journaling and I started journaling I didn't think I was writing a book. I started journaling to tell what happened in the medical community because I was going to tell people I had fallen through the cracks and what had actually happened. And so from there, I guess you would say it was it wasn't in anger, but it was like, I'm going to tell this story, you know? Yeah. And then from there, I found integrative treatment. So I kept journaling to tell people like, wow, this is out here. There are things out here that I didn't know. And if I didn't know them, other people probably didn't know them. So I just kept journaling. And this was when I was so sick that I don't even know that I knew what I was writing certain days. And then at some point, I realized at one point we would drive to Chicago for treatment and I couldn't stand any noise. I couldn't stand being around anybody. I couldn't stand the traffic. It was in July. And I had a, this comforter wrapped around me and I had earplugs in and I had my computer and I was writing just to keep everything else out. And I realized at that point that I was writing a chapter in a book. And so this book actually came from a place that I would not have been willing to write a book before. So a lot of it was in place before I even realized I was writing a book. That's uh, that's so interesting because, yeah, I noticed the tone in your book. I felt the tone change at different points. Right. And I thought, you know, like I, I felt like I could feel your anger, you know, right. when you were diagnosed and when you were dealing with all the challenges of the different doctors and what they right. said and what they did. The first part of the book, I didn't feel your anger. I didn't feel anger there. I just felt this beautiful openness that you had. But, uh, you know, I want to ask you about the title. And I know in the book, you explain the title. I meant it for good. But I want to hear from you. In retrospect, you've published the book. Are you still happy with the title? Or do you wish you had a different title? Tell us about the title. I 
love the title. And the title came out of, um, so I was diagnosed three years ago, but it was in April of 2017. I was in Arizona by myself and I woke up in bed and um, that winter I'd had bronchitis a couple times, but it was like nothing ever had. But that was one morning I woke up and I was horribly ill. And you know, Bruce, it's just like, you know, you know, something is really, really not right. And the, this verse came to my head. It was like, they meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. And right behind that, I heard Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you. And I, I had clung to that verse for years when I'd gone through the divorce. But this other one, I mean, I think I knew it was in the Bible, but I didn't know where it was at. I, I'm sure I'd heard it before. And so, but, but going through this really sickness and this illness, I never looked it up for a couple months, but every morning I would hear these, you know, I would, I would just keep hearing these two verses. And so I found out later it's from Genesis and, you know, it's, it's about Joseph, is it, that was sold into slavery by his brothers? Yes. Yeah. And so it, it's like, I still to this day don't know what it means. But the title to me, it could be about my life. It could be about what I went through. It could be about what we're going through today. It's like, they meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. And so for me, that was the surrender, the falling. If, if God has the answers, I have nowhere else to go. Well, it's a beautiful title and it's a, the book, when you open it and you look at it and you leaf through it is beautiful. I love the style and the artistic design and the font of the chapter headings and, and your quotes by Eleanor Roosevelt and C.S. Lewis and other people. Did you have a designer help you with all these elements of style or is this your own flair? I have, I came up with all of the own, my own quotes. But I write from the heart, Bruce. So I had to have someone really edit it. And they did the designing, the cover, the, you know, the whole flair of the chapters and that sort of thing. Well, they did a beautiful job because just from looking at the cover and and reading the book, it just feels good. And and not all books are like that. Like sometimes the font seems too small or sometimes it seems too cramped or whatever. And this book was just really a delight to read. And well, uh, I appreciate that, Bruce. That means a lot. Yeah. So Mindful Tribe, as you listen today and you think, you know, would you like an, a beautiful summer book? that you can read quickly and easily and yet get some really super uh, lessons of life, well, check out I Meant It For Good, a memoir of dreaming, visualizing, and becoming my authentic self. And you can check out Mary's website. It's Mary Reckhammer Meyer, M-A-R-Y-R-E-C-H-K-E-M-M-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R.com. So check out the website. And, and check out the book. I, I certainly encourage you to do it. Now, we talked, we touched on the six areas of life, but let's talk about them and how you ended up feeling like you were keeping them in balance more. I know the first one is spiritual. So let's talk about those six areas. Yeah, there's a spiritual, there's health and wellness, there's the emotional, there's professional, intellectual, and there's financial. And there's also so relationships. Raised, I'll just cut in. Yeah, here. relationships. Right. I miss one. Right. So so I, um, I I put them in the order of importance to me. And the first was spiritual. And to me, um, it's been a lifelong process for me trying to figure out 
really who I am, what my belief system is. And so I think it's it's about the spiritual relation I have with God and just being at peace. You can put a religion over the top of that. But to me, it's just that spiritual being at peace with God. And then the next health came very important to me, especially as I struggled to find integrative treatment and a way to um, to really hone in on this and believe that I could be healed. And so I think if we don't take care of our bodies, we don't have a whole lot else. No. And then from there, I think it's relationship. Um, that it's the relationship, whether we have that spouse, children, our, our broader group around us, but it's just, it's about giving back to others and, and just being that light to other people and, and feeling that from others. And then it's the emotional. If this is the emotional, if we can't get our emotions in check, um, I, I've heard it described as a powerful car. If you're too emotional, you'll roll all over everybody. And if you don't have any emotions, then you're just kind of blah and, and you can't create and believe that you can visualize anything. And then from there, it's the professional intellectual. What kind of goals are you going to set? What do you want to create? What do you want to do? And if you're putting all those in place, then the, um, then the finance is going to follow. And now you help others with your coaching. Can you share a story about someone you've helped that has really given you a lot of uh, pleasure and, and just in the knowledge of knowing how much you've helped them move forward? Well, I think for me, I, I started out with having people visualize what they wanted their life to look like. And then I realized we had to come back. And I think I said this earlier, we have to come back to the core values. And so for me, it's interesting seeing these people really find out who they are and bloom so that they can move forward. And it's not about me doing really anything for them. It's it's them actually finding out who they are so they can become their authentic person and live the life they were meant to live. Not the way I think they should live it, but the, but the, what really is speaking to them. Yeah. I, I, I really like that. You have seven children and 11 grandchildren. What mindfulness lessons have you learned from them? Well, it's really interesting, Bruce, because I have four biological children and my husband have three. It's our second marriage. And so we blended uh, a family when we were in our 50s and they were all out of the house by then. But still, you know, we raised our children different. It's it was just um, it, it's it's learning to do all the things you say that you're learning to do in all other areas of your life, as far as just stepping back and, and listening and allowing them to be their own people. Because sometimes I still want to tell them how to do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I know. I've, uh, I've got only one child, but sometimes I want to tell him how to do things. <laughs> He's 18. And sometimes he needs to know that. And sometimes I need to know to let him do his own thing. Right. And that's such a balance, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, you you became remarried to, to Jan. And in the book, you called him your rock. And I just want to know, 
Well, I was sort of hungry as I read the book to know a little bit more about him, to know a little bit more about your relationship with him, because you didn't say much. Uh, can you give us some peeks into your relationship with Jan? I can. He he is the rock. And I chose not to tell a lot about anybody because I was just going to tell my story. And I think he has his own story that he needs to write. But um, Jan is just very solid. He's very soft-spoken. There's nobody that doesn't like Jan. So he has um, been a farm manager for 30 years and has managed. uh, So he manages maybe second, third generation farm for people that, you know, for landlords that don't even live in the area. So he hires the farmer, fires the farmer, does all these different things for them. It's just become a real trust issue. I mean, like he's family to all these people. So that's the kind of person he is. But you know, what's exciting, Bruce, now is he's making some changes in his business and he's going to be freeing up some time. So as we're going through this, I can see is I don't know where either one of us are heading, but it's like we're freeing up our time to do something. And I know with his love for what he's done with farm management and with the soil, and he is now more into organic. And I think you're going to see him do some more things with that, which really, I think fits in with our health and wellness and everything that we've gone through. Yeah, you talk a little bit about the organic farming and how you grew up on on a farm and kind of reminded me of myself. I grew up on a farm, too, and it was just a small farm, you know, mixed farming. And and back in those days, you know, they didn't use anywhere near the pesticides and all these chemicals that they use today. And so, yeah, I was very, very intrigued about that. Well, tell us, what was your life like on the farm way back then? Well, you know, it was interesting because I grew up on a farm till I was in the fourth grade. So that was all I knew. And I had five older brothers and the oldest one was six or the youngest one was six years older than I was. And then I had a younger sister that was five years younger. So I was like an only child. Right. So, you know, I don't remember a lot. I just remember being out on the farm. I remember the going out in the fields and getting to ride the tractor and doing things like that. But I also remember having a clearing behind our house in this, in this wooded area. And we would sweep it all out and clean it. And I had this little playhouse back there where we literally made mud pies and I would line my dolls up and I would talk to them. And, you know, they, I was the teacher and they never talked back. So, (laughs) but, but I really feel like I was so sheltered. All I knew was family and extended family, a lot of extended family and close friends. And so you were kind of in a bubble, if you will. Yeah. I, I, I could just picture you there with your dolls and your little mud pies and everything. That's, (laughs) that's really quite a, quite a picture. That's, that's really cool. So, you know, back to mindfulness, have you always thought of yourself as somebody that um, you know, use those kind of elements in your life. I mean, we haven't called it mindfulness forever, but has that kind of, have those kinds of things played a role in your life for most of your life? I, I don't, 
honestly know if it has or not. I think, I don't think I really become aware, became aware of a lot of things until I went through my divorce. And that was such a soul searching time for me. Because quite frankly, when I was home raising kids, I had four kids when I was home with them, you just do every day what you need to do and you try to do your best job. And in some ways you're mindful, you're taking care of them and doing that. But I don't think you think beyond that of who you are and what you're going to do. And obviously some people do, but I don't think I did. So I don't think it was until I was thrown out with, you know, went out on my own after the divorce and um, really found out who I was because I moved to a town after I started my own insurance agency. I moved to a town by myself of 5,000 people. And so there was a lot of soul searching, a lot of quiet time, if you will, to learn out who I really was. So I think it was then that I became more mindful. It was so exciting hearing how you moved to that town and built your business. And I just really felt like I was along with you. And then you had to make that tough, tough decision after that when you met Jan. How difficult was that? It was horribly difficult because I had told myself I would never do this. I would never give up anything again. I had worked for this. And, you know, there was a little Scarlett O'Hara in me, I'm sure, when it said, I will never be hungry again. (laughs) But it was like, that was kind of what I had built my life on. And it worked when I was single. But now how do you merge that with another person? And how do you find that without giving up yourself? And I think that's a struggle so many of us find ourselves in. So at the time, I mean, I I did a lot of soul searching. And we actually, after we were married, commuted for two years, an hour and a half apart. We each had a home in different towns. And we just knew something had to change. And so finally, I decided to walk away. And I, I questioned it for a long time. I think in my heart, I knew it was the right thing or I wouldn't have done it. But I still questioned it. You know, it's mm-hmm. still kind of like you have a little victim mode. Well, why did I have to do yes. this? But in the long run, it was the best thing that ever happened for us. And so I think what Jan and I are learning is there's so much give and take in a marriage. And how much can you give and take and still both come to the table and honor that other person? You know, but I think it takes a long time to figure that out. I think so too. Well, your faith in Christianity is so obvious. And I imagine that prayer is part of your meditation in your life. Is that true? Or do you have a meditation? Do you do meditation as well as prayer? No, for me, meditation looks more like um, reading something that's going to inspire me and then sitting and being quiet and listening for that still small voice or God speaking to me. But prayer is also a part of that. But I, but I learned early on, and I shared this in my book, when I was diagnosed and before we, st- we knew what we were going to do, we'd met the doctors, but before I could start the treatment, I, we came back and I said to Jan, I said, what do we believe? You know, do we believe in prayer? Do we believe it works or do we just pray or what is it all about? And so we talked about it at length. And then Jan prayed over me. 
And again, he is very soft-spoken, but his voice was very loud. Obviously, it was his voice. It wasn't someone else's voice, but it was very loud. And he commanded every cancer cell to leave my body. And then he started thanking God that I was already healed. And, you know, we looked at each other and we kind of grinned. As sick as I was, we kind of grinned and we knew that I'd been healed. And it was hard to tell other people that. And we knew we, I still had a long way to go. And, and like I said earlier, we, I also knew there was a small chance that I wouldn't be healed, but that was the surrender. It was going to be okay either way. And so, yes, prayer, prayer is a huge piece for me, but I also believe, I think before it was like, I prayed for something to happen, but now I believe part of prayer is believing that it's going to happen. Yes, I think I think that's true. I think it really is that that belief that things can be better or different or whatever, whatever it is. I've done a lot of work in bullying prevention. Do you have a story that you can share with us somehow in your life where maybe bullying would have ch- taken a different direction had mindfulness played a role? I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up so innocent and out on the farm. I don't know that I really. At that point, I don't think there was any bullying. I, I think sometimes I was kind of in a bubble, kind of protected, because mm-hmm. I just wasn't exposed to that. And I went to a one-room schoolhouse. There was 10 kids. They were all neighbors, you know? Yes. So it was just like another family, really. Yeah. And then I did go to school in town in fourth grade. Now, I skipped a grade, so I went, at the end of the year, I I skipped fifth grade and went to sixth grade. And so if there was probably any bullying that was going to be done, it was there. But, you know, I I thought a lot about this, and there were six of us girls that did things together. And I think they kind of adopted me in a way, and I think if anybody would have said something to me, I think they would have stood up for me and challenge these people. I mean, it was like, again, I think I was kind of protected in a way. Mm -hmm. But I think about this too, Bruce, because I think there was so many times later on that I had to choose to do things and people would say things and I didn't like. But, you know, in the back of my mind, it was always like, I grew up in an era where the parents said, if you get in trouble in school, you're going to be in bigger trouble at home. And so I think you kind of take that and think, well, I've got to figure this out myself. Yes. And when you were uh, at your insurance office and in charge of that, did you ever have to sort out any messes with your employees? Uh, yes, I had to do that a lot. But also, I moved to that community and there were some people that thought maybe they should have sent a man there or, you know, someone different in that position. And so you... In a way, I mean, if you're going to do this, you have to do it and you you have to put up with some of it. But I, I don't think I was bullied in the sense of what some people have endured. But again, I think there's adversities that sometimes you have to choose. I've got to get through this. Yeah. Yeah. I really like your outlook on life, Mary. I really do. As we move forward, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a very powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Well, I I think there's been a lot of people. I grew up with five older brothers. So I look back at each one of them and I think that they really had a role in my life as well as my parents. 
And um, the older I get, I think they probably had more influence on me than I even knew. And then even my younger sister. So. Mm-hmm. And how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Well, mindfulness has affected my emotions because I'm aware of them. Because when you're not mindful and you're just a victim or you're upset with everybody and you're angry. I mean, when I got so sick, I was so messed up, Bruce, and I was angry. I was lashing out at my kids. They didn't even want to be around me, but none of us knew why. And so I think in that point, when you're just so messed up and so sick, you don't even know what's happening. But it was like when you step back then and you realize what's happening and you choose to surrender to it and just if it means you have to stay in isolation and put yourself in time out to heal. That's kind of what you have to do. And that was kind of, for me, the mindfulness of really understanding what was going on in my head and my body. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Well, I think that's something I have to remind myself of, because when I was diagnosed, that was another thing. I had asthma or breathing problems. And when I went to a therapist at the time, she gave me breathing lessons. And she said, it's like you're having panic attacks and you've learned to breathe this way. So you have to learn how to do the deep breathing and the rhythmic breathing and the space in between. And I had never realized that before, that breathing is a huge piece of this, just being mindfulness. Well, your book, I meant it for good. I have it right here. It's such a beautiful book and a beautiful read. But if there were any other books you could recommend on the topic of mindfulness, what book would that be? Wow. You know, we all know the book by Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, but he wrote another one, Outwitting the Devil. And not everybody's familiar with that one. I have it right here. And the subtitle caught me the other day. It's Outwitting the Devil, The Secret to Freedom and Success. Mm. So I think there's a couple things in that book that really speak to me. And one is we can drift through life. We can listen to that voice that just tells us we're too old, we're too young, you're not smart enough, you don't have the money. Or you can listen to that other voice and you can get out and you can create what you want. So I think it's it's that mindfulness of knowing that. So that book spoke to me on that part. But he also, this book, Bruce, was written in 1938, but it wasn't published till 2011. And so his wife didn't want it published because she thought it went too much against the uh, establishment, religion, whatever. And so it wasn't published till 2011. And I think it's a great book for this time. To actually think about the freedoms we've had, the choices we have, and where we want to go with all of this, and how much we can create that and be mindful in the process. I think I want to read that book. I haven't read it yet. Tell us the title again. It's Outwitting the Devil, and the subtitle is The Secret to Freedom and Success by Napoleon Hill. And of course, you talk about freedom in your book, and freedom is really something that we're all looking for, isn't it? We're just looking for freedom and being able to fulfill our dreams in life. And my last question is about an app, whether there's any app at all that you would recommend, or maybe some of your clients use or something like that. Oh, 
you know, I, I thought about that and I really don't use an app. So at this point, sure. I, you know, I would be open to hearing that, but I, I, I do not at this point. Sure. So. Sure. Yeah. Well, it has been such a delight, Mary, to, to talk to you and spend this time with you. And like I said, I truly enjoyed your book and encourage Mindful Tribe. I encourage you to, to read this book because it's, it's a real pleasure to read. And I just want to thank you for being on the show. Do you have any, any last words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, Bruce, thank you for having me on the show. I, I just really enjoy it. But, you know, I think for me, it's just all about knowing that you have options in your life and just be who you are, be authentic and find out who that is. And I think, I think what you're doing is great because you can't get there without being mindful and purposeful and, and really letting your guard down to know who that is. And that's the only way you'll be free. Thank you for that advice. And thank you for being on the show. All the best to you, Mary. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah, bye now. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please tell your friends about the show. Every person who subscribes and listens helps our show. So in the meantime, take what you heard today and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.